Friday, November 5th, 1999, rural Kansas. At 4.20 p.m., Camille Arfman, 14 years old, steps off her school bus. She walks to the trailer where she lives with her older sister and her family. About 5 p.m., a friend, Rose Meyer, stops by. She goes in the trailer and sees the teenager's jacket and book bag inside the house. Not finding anyone home, Rose leaves. At 6.30 p.m., friends stop by to take Camille to an activity at nearby Countryside Baptist Church. When there is no answer at the door, they leave. At 12.50 a.m. Saturday morning, the Jefferson County Sheriff receives a call reporting the teenager missing. Welcome back to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of horrific violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. As we've discussed, Leavenworth, Kansas has the well-deserved nickname of Prison City, USA. And no, I am not currently a resident at any of our prisons, nor am I an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting. I may think I'm an expert in lots of things, but truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. Okay. Enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about murder. Zeta Camille Arfman, that's A-R-F-M-A-N-N, was born March 4, 1985, in Winchester, Kansas. The 14-year-old prefers to be called Camille or Millie. Her nieces and nephews call her Aunt Mimi. Camille is the baby of Tommy and Dale Arfman's family of seven children. Tommy, T-O-M-M-I-E, is her mother. She and Dale have been divorced for 14 years. Tommy makes her home in Winchester while Dale lives some 40 minutes south in Lawrence, the location of the University of Kansas main campus. Winchester is a very small town about 500 people, located in Jefferson County, Kansas, a sparsely populated rural county northeast of Topeka. 
In the fall of 1999, Camille lives about 10 minutes south of Winchester, near the county seat of Oskaloosa, a town of about a thousand. Camille is a softly pretty young girl with beautiful big eyes and long reddish hair. Her family and friends describe her as a shy, sweet, religious girl. Currently, she lives with her 20-year-old sister Heidi in a trailer on a county road about a mile and a half north of Oskaloosa. Also living in the trailer are Heidi's husband, Floyd Bledsoe Jr., 23, and their two sons, Cody, age two, and Christian, nine months. Camille has only recently moved in with them so she can attend Oskaloosa High School. She has just started the ninth grade there. Previously, Camille was enrolled in school in Winchester where she lived with her mother. I couldn't find exactly what the reason for the transfer was. There is a high school in Winchester where her mother lives. One of the newspapers reports that Tommy had to leave for work at 3 a.m., which made driving Camille to school a problem. I suspect there may have been more to it. It seems odd that she would want to start high school in a brand new school away from her childhood friends. Perhaps some situation was making her uncomfortable in her hometown, or maybe she wanted to take advantage of some course of study only offered at Oskaloosa High. If I had to guess, I think she may also have wanted to help Heidi and Floyd out with the children. They both worked nights and money was very tight. In fact, later on, Tommy will say there was no phone at the trailer and just one car that only Floyd used. It's a little unclear exactly what everyone is doing on the day Camille goes missing. But this is my best guess based on the newspaper reports and the court documents. On Friday, November 5th, 1999, the school bus drops Camille off at her trailer at 4.20 p.m. The Bledsoe children are at the babysitters, and Heidi and Floyd Bledsoe are both at work. In the evening, Camille plans to go to a church youth activity in nearby McLeod, Kansas. Friends are supposed to pick her up about 6.30 p.m. After that, her mother is expecting to see her in Winchester for the weekend. It's never really explained how she is supposed to get to her mother's house. Perhaps one of her church friends was planning to give her a ride to Winchester after church, since Heidi and Floyd don't get home from work until midnight. It starts getting late, and Tommy begins to worry about 10 p.m. when she doesn't hear from Camille. She calls Camille's friends and finds out that she didn't show up for the Friday night activity at the church. This is troubling to Tommy. About 10.30 p.m., she calls Floyd at the dairy where he works. When he can't tell her anything about where Camille is, she tells him she's going to call the sheriff. He urges her to wait a little while and keep checking with friends in case there's just been some miscommunication. 
The trailer is checked at some point. More family and friends get involved. Tommy and one of her sons drive down to the dairy to talk with Floyd, arriving about 11 p.m. They don't see his car, and the lights are out at the dairy farm. So they go to the trailer and start searching some more. I took a drive out to the location of the trailer. It's at 15200 Fairview Road. I didn't see a trailer there and not much else except a few livestock pens and a cluster of trees. There aren't any neighbors nearby, although not far away is a small trailer park and a few homes. Heidi gets home at midnight and Floyd arrives soon after. They all talk for a while and try to figure out what to do next. Floyd picks the children up from the babysitter at 12.45 a.m. At 12.50 a.m., Camille is reported missing to the sheriff's office. It's never stated exactly where Floyd and the boys are at this time or really where anybody else is. My best guess is that family and friends have been mobilized and everyone is calling people and searching all over. Floyd takes the boys back to the babysitter at 2.45 a.m. and apparently continues to search until he picks them up again at about 8 a.m. By morning, sheriff's deputies are involved along with the family, questioning neighbors, calling residents in the area, and distributing flyers. Sergeant Papa, a Jefferson County deputy, runs into Floyd at Casey's Convenience Store in Oskaloosa about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. Floyd says he is very worried that Camille may have been abducted. The sergeant finds that a little strange since most people are still really just looking for a missing teen. But by that afternoon, search dogs are requested from neighboring Leavenworth County and they are soon deployed. The night before, a caller had reported hearing screams in an area quite a ways east of the trailer. The dogs are taken to the area but don't show any interest. The search continues all weekend and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and the Kansas Highway Patrol are called in to coordinate search efforts. Unfortunately, no trace of Camille is found. Finally Sunday, a phone call to the Sheriff's Office changes the search to a murder investigation. Sadly, late Sunday night, a tip is received that leads to the discovery about 2.30 a.m. of Camille's body in a remote ditch near a private trash dump a few miles from the trailer where she disappeared. The body is covered in debris topped with plywood. Sergeant Robert Papa of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office will later say that without the tip, the body would probably never have been discovered. Camille is found face up, clothed, with her t-shirt and bra pulled up. 
She has been shot once in the back of the head and three times in the chest. There are no signs of violent sexual assault. Three bullet casings from a 9mm pistol are located nearby. Later, the forensic pathologist, Dr. Eric Mitchell, reveals that the shot fired to the back of the head was a contact shot. That was the cause of death. His expert opinion is that she was positioned in the ditch after death and that her clothing was pulled up before the three shots to the chest were fired. I'm thinking he can say that because there was little bleeding from the chest wounds. Based on the position and folds of Camille's shirt and bra, it appeared that her clothes had been intentionally lifted to expose her breasts rather than moved up by dragging or sliding of the body. This leads law enforcement to presume a sexual motive for the crime. The pathologist also says that the headshot was not fired at the location where she was found. From all that I read, that also seems to be the opinion of the detectives. But listeners, there's no clear explanation, at least that I could find, about the basis for that conclusion. Again, not an expert, but... I've got a question why they are so sure she wasn't shot there by the side of the ditch, then put in the ditch and shot in the chest to make sure she's dead. My best guess is that no blood or tissue was found at the scene, although nobody ever reports on that. You would expect to find something if the victim was shot in the head there. Also, only three casings were found and there were four shots, so that could indicate that one of the shots was fired somewhere else. Typically, a 9mm pistol doesn't eject the casings very far. That's why when you practice with it, you and everybody around you should wear eye protection. From my experience, the shells go about six, maybe ten feet behind you in a four o'clock position, although it can vary a lot. So it makes sense if all four shots were fired there, all four casings would have been found in close proximity. Of course, it's also possible the murderer picked up that first casing or they just didn't find the other casing. At any rate, the working premise for law enforcement is that she was not killed where the body was found. And ultimately, the actual scene of the murder itself will never really be determined for certain. So where did the tip that led to the discovery of the body come from? Here's the story. At 10.30 p.m. on Sunday, about 48 hours since Camille disappeared, a young man and his parents arrive at the sheriff's department, accompanied by a local attorney. The man leads authorities to Camille's body, which is located on private land owned by Catherine 
and Floyd Bledsoe Sr. The body is found about a mile from the couple's house at a private trash dump used only by the family. Catherine and Floyd Sr. are the parents of Heidi's husband, Floyd Jr. The Bledsoe property is three and a half miles from the trailer where Camille went missing. It is way out in the country, off Kansas Highway 59. The address, if you're in the area, is 11477 Osage Road. To get there, you have to follow windy gravel roads. It takes 15 minutes at least to get there from the trailer. Then it's another mile to get to the dump site. The man who leads detectives to Camille's body is arrested immediately. His name is Thomas Bledsoe. He is 25 years old and the older brother of Camille's brother-in-law, Floyd Bledsoe Jr. Thomas Bledsoe lives with his parents near the site of the body dump. He is a graduate of Oskaloosa High School. His yearbook picture shows a fair, red-headed kid with big glasses. He reminds me a little of a young Bill Gates. There's a description of the brothers by Mary Myers, a reporter for the Atchison Globe, who covered the trial. Fair-complected, strawberry blonde, the younger brother Floyd, only five foot three, with Thomas even more diminutive. Thomas is employed as a security guard at Farmland Industries, a fertilizer plant in South Lawrence. He also helps out at Walnut Springs Repair Service, a family-owned business. He's a quiet young man who is deaf and wears hearing aids in both ears. Interestingly, he attends the Countryside Baptist Church in McLeod, the same one attended by Camille. On Sunday evening after church, Thomas leaves two messages on the answering machine of the pastor, James Bollinger. Hi, Jim. This is Tom. I wanted you to be the first to know. I know I lied to you. I know where Camille is, and when you get this message, I'm going to turn myself in to the police. I wish I never did it. I hurt the church. I hurt God. Most of all, I let everyone down. All I can say is I'm sorry. I'll pay for the rest of my life for what I've done. All I can ask is for the church to remain strong. Please forgive me. As a favor, please remember my mom and dad. Help them when they go through. Help with the pain. I'm about to. Thank you, Jim. A few minutes later, he left another message saying he had wanted to tell Jim in front of the church, but didn't, quote, have the guts. I wish I could turn the clock back, but I can't. I made my choice, unquote. Thomas then calls his parents. His father says to wait until he can go with him to the police. Thomas calls Bollinger again and leaves another message saying, All I can ask is forgiveness for what I have done. 
I will pay for the rest of my life for what I have done. He is arrested at 2.45 a.m. Through his attorney, Thomas turns over to law enforcement a 9mm handgun, later confirmed by ballistics testing to be the murder weapon. In addition, 9mm bullets are turned over that Thomas purchased the afternoon Camille disappeared. There are reports that while in custody, Thomas tells the police, I did it, I killed her. However, police will confirm only that Bledsoe is charged with first-degree murder and the investigation is ongoing. Sergeant Pappas says that no one suspected any of the family members of foul play. They were out night and day looking for her. Actually, listeners, I always suspect husbands and boyfriends and brothers-in-law first. Meanwhile, the family grieves. Tommy says in an interview that, quote, she thought God would see her through. She wanted to be a police officer. She wanted to help kids who had been in car wrecks to give them teddy bears, unquote. After suggestions that she get some sleep, she states, there was no way you could lay down. Everywhere you look, there are memories of her. Funeral services are held on Saturday, November 13th. The following Monday, there will be a stunning development in the case. On Monday, November 15th, 1999, one week after Camille's body is found, two brothers, Floyd Bledsoe Jr. and Thomas Bledsoe, appear in court. Floyd is charged with the first-degree murder of Zeta Camille Arfman. All charges against Thomas are dropped without prejudice. Listeners, I always get with and without prejudice mixed up, so I looked it up. Without prejudice is the one that lets the state recharge later if they want to. No double jeopardy attaches. Atchison attorney John Kurth, K-U-R-T-H, is appointed to represent Floyd in the matter. Jefferson County Sheriff Roy Dunaway refuses to rule out Thomas as a suspect with some involvement in the murder, but Thomas now says Floyd killed Camille. Floyd's trial begins a few months later, on April 24, 2000, in Oskaloosa. By this time, it is not hard to see how the trial will unfold. The prosecution will present a purely circumstantial case, which rests primarily on Thomas's testimony that Floyd told him he killed Camille and persuaded him to take the blame. The defense's case will be that Thomas is lying and he is the one that killed Camille, just like everyone thought 
right after the body was found. So let's look at the prosecution's case. I wish I could say the case was logical and straightforward, but it's not. It's all over the place with lots of holes and questionable stuff. The prosecutor is Jim Vanderbilt, the Jefferson County attorney and elected position. As we will find out later, he is in over his head in this position. As far as motive goes, there is testimony that Camille was afraid to be alone with Floyd, that he was always hitting on her. There is some evidence that Heidi and Floyd were thinking about a divorce. By the time of the trial, Heidi has filed for divorce. According to the pastor's wife, Rosa Bollinger, Floyd had intimated to Camille that he would like her to continue living with him at the trailer after the divorce. This frightened Camille, and she even asked Rosa if she could come live with the pastor and his family. William Knoble, an army colonel stationed at nearby Fort Leavenworth, was bow hunting the evening Camille disappeared near the Zool Dairy Farm where Floyd worked. If you're familiar with the area, I think the dairy is on Kansas Highway 92. It's a little north of McLeod and east of the trailer. Knoble was hunting just off Wild Horse Road, which is to the east of the dairy. The area all around the dairy is very rural, lots of fields and woods. Around 5.30 p.m., Colonel Knoble heard a woman scream, Please don't hurt me. Somebody help. Please don't hurt me. He thought it might just be kids playing. He sat in the deer stand, listening and trying to figure out where the screams came from. Listeners, I live out in the country, and it is hard to tell where sounds are coming from out there. When he heard more screams, he says, quote, It was very clear in my mind that somebody was in need of some help, so I started running toward where I thought I heard the sound coming from, unquote. Unfortunately, he ran into some dogs and had to climb a tree to get away from them. Eventually, he climbed down, didn't investigate any further, and didn't notify anyone about what he heard until over an hour later. Floyd's boss at the dairy, Richard Zuhl, testifies that about 4 p.m. Friday, November 5th, Floyd took Zuhl's truck to Winchester Hardware to buy duct tape. The hardware store owner verified that Floyd purchased the duct tape and a sweatshirt at about 4.20 p.m. and was there about 15 to 20 minutes. Zul believes that Floyd returned about 5 p.m. Zul's wife saw Floyd start the evening milking about 6.15 or 6.30. Richard estimates that the milking takes three and a half to four and a quarter hours followed by about 30 minutes of barn cleaning. Later on, he will say 
it probably takes more like five or five and a half hours. According to Floyd's statement to detectives, he met the school bus on the road that Friday and stopped at the trailer, but Camille was not there. Floyd will later deny he ever said this. After returning to the dairy, Floyd went out into a field to check on a cow and then rode a four-wheeler toward the farm to start milking the cows, at least according to him. He called Zool at 11.30 p.m. to tell him that one of the cows was not giving milk and he was just about to finish up work. So this is the time period the prosecution contends that Floyd abducted and murdered Camille, although no physical evidence is presented to tie Floyd to the crime. No theory of exactly when in all this time or where in all this area or even how the crime was committed is presented. Quite a bit of time is spent on testimony about what Cody Bledsoe, Heidi and Floyd's two-year-old son, might have seen. In a nutshell, supposedly, Cody was heard by witnesses saying, Aunt Mimi got shot. At first, he is supposed to have said that Uncle Tom did it. Later, he's supposed to be saying, Daddy did it. There is much ado over this. Cody was not put on the stand, but the hearsay testimony of several witnesses about this was allowed. Floyd and Thomas's mother, Catherine Bledsoe, testifies about a jailhouse conversation with Floyd. The gist of the conversation is that she told him she believes Thomas didn't kill Camille. Floyd then said, I didn't do it, so maybe Dad did it, which, of course, greatly offended his mother. Thomas is the star witness. In fact, the whole trial really boils down to whether the jury believes what he's saying now as opposed to what he originally said. On the Friday of the murder... Thomas says that he went to Farmland Industries in southeastern Lawrence to pick up his paycheck. Then he stopped at nearby Rusty's Outdoor Sports Store to get some ammunition, including 9mm bullets for his pistol, the murder weapon. The Rusty's clerk testifies that the receipt for the bullets was indeed time-stamped at 4.30 p.m. On the way back to his house, Thomas stopped along the way to scout some hunting spots. That evening, he went to the Countryside Baptist Church, which he regularly attends, along with Camille. That is verified by people at the church. If you know the area, the church is at 10328 Wellman Road. It's not far from Camille's trailer and it's not far from the dairy, either. When he finds out that Camille is missing, he is understandably concerned. Thomas leaves for work. Between 11 a.m. and 1 a.m. on Saturday, November 6th, 
On the way to Oskaloosa, he flags down his brother to ask about the search. Here is a summary of the rest of Thomas's testimony. Floyd laid his head on the steering wheel and looked a little nervous when I asked him what was wrong. Floyd said, she's dead, accidentally shot her. When I asked whether he had raped Camille or sexually abused her, Floyd responded, yes, no, I don't know. He recalled her shirt and bra were above her breasts, and he said he used my pistol to shoot her. I reached behind my truck seat and felt the pistol in the case. Floyd knew I kept a gun in my truck. No explanation of how or when Floyd got his gun and when he might have put it back in the truck, but whatever. Floyd told me he shot her once in the back of the head and twice in the chest. He told me she was in the trash dump behind her parents' house underneath plywood, trash, and dirt. Then Floyd told me not to tell anyone and to take the blame. Otherwise, Floyd would tell members of my church about some really icky sexual things. That's not what he said, but... Listeners, you really don't want to know the specifics. That Saturday night, Thomas says, I went to make sure if what Floyd told me was true. I drove out to the trash dump and looked around and didn't see Camille's body, but noticed that items in the dump and dirt had been displaced. Then I went home and put the gun in my dresser drawer. The next day, I left messages for Pastor James Bollinger and turned myself in telling officers I shot Camille. I shot myself in for something I did not do because I did not want people to know about my past. I also thought about wanting Floyd's children to grow up with a father in the home. A day or two after the arrest, I was ashamed about lying and talked to the police again, implicating Floyd. I could not live with myself because Floyd had told me where Camille's body was. The main thrust of the defense is that Thomas did it and is lying to save himself and because he hates his brother. There is gossip that the brothers don't get along well. One acquaintance calls it almost a Cain and Abel situation. But it's not unusual for brothers and sisters not to get along. And when push comes to shove, they're still brothers and sisters. Defense attorney Kurth cross-examines Thomas vigorously to show that Thomas was obsessed with Camille and that Thomas actually told the truth originally. He emphasizes that the murder weapon belonged to Thomas. He doggedly tries to bolster Floyd's alibi and knock down Thomas's alibi. Interestingly, and I think wrongly, he accepts that Cody saw Camille's murder, honing in 
on the fact that witnesses testified that Cody initially said, Uncle Tom shot Aunt Mimi. In his closing arguments, Kurth says, quote, The reason Thomas knew where the body was was because he put Camille in there. Thomas is nothing but a liar, and he lied to get out of jail. There's not reasonable doubt. There's all doubt. Unquote. The jury deliberates several hours over the next couple of days and returns with a guilty verdict on April 28, 2000. Astonishingly, to me anyway, Vanderbilt, the prosecutor, actually says to reporters that he was shocked that he could convince jurors with so little physical evidence. Quote, we were worried. It was real hard to stick to our guns and prosecute the case. There's a ton of evidence out there we don't have, unquote. Yes, like, where was Camille actually killed? Quote, hopefully now we'll find out more, but we may never find out all the answers, unquote. And they don't. Floyd Bledsoe is convicted and sentenced to life in prison. After that, the investigation is over, at least as far as law enforcement is concerned. The defense, of course, appeals immediately. This initial appeal by defense attorney Kurth cites the complete lack of physical evidence and contends that the state failed to prove their case. This appeal is unsuccessful. They almost always seem to be. And Floyd is sent to Lansing Correctional Facility, a state prison near Leavenworth, Kansas, to begin serving his life sentence. Years go by, and the case wends its way through the courts. In 2007, the Kansas Supreme Court reviews the case. Defense points include the usual prosecutorial misconduct, ineffective defense counsel, and violation of Miranda rights. These points always seem to be part of appeals. The prosecutorial misconduct is based mainly on the presentation of what Cody, the two-year-old, may have said about the crime. Listeners, let me tell you a little about the legal career of the prosecutor, Jim Vanderbilt, after the Bledsoe trial. He does not run for re-election, probably a good thing. At an appeal hearing for a different case, Vanderbilt actually admits that his, quote, skills at oral arguments and writing briefs were poor, unquote. His mental stability is brought into question at a later disciplinary panel. He gets in financial trouble 
and is even jailed for non-payment of $60,000 in back child support. He loses his law license in 2011. Later, there are charges of corruption, but I think he was just totally incompetent and always took the easy way out. This is pretty much how the court sees it, too. They don't think much of the Cody evidence. However, both lawyers used it in their cases, and they don't believe it's enough to overturn the verdict. The court also rules that Floyd's Miranda rights were not violated, and they weren't. As for ineffective defense counsel, the points raised are mainly that John Kurth should have done a better job when they were picking the jury. And he didn't object strenuously enough to some of the testimony. There's also criticism of Kurth with, with respect to the sexual motive in the crime. The appeal charges that Kurth should have tried to show that Camille's breasts were exposed while the body was being moved, incidentally. The court agrees that Kurt could have done a better job in some areas and then rules the following. We nevertheless do not believe Floyd demonstrated that any one of these individual failings or that these failings considered collectively so undermined the fairness of his trial as to impair our confidence in its outcome, i.e. rot in jail, loser. Floyd stays in jail and appeals to the U.S. District Court in Topeka. In 2008, the federal judge surprisingly decides there was ineffective counsel and orders Floyd's release. He is out for a few months, but he returns to prison when the federal 10th Circuit Court reverses that decision. Listeners, it is very hard to prove ineffective counsel. The standard is called the Strickland Standard. You must prove A, that your attorney's performance was inadequate, and this has to be a pretty serious error, and B, that the inadequate representation unfairly prejudiced you to the extent that you didn't get a fair trial. That is a pretty high legal bar. So in 2009, Floyd is back in Lansing, serving his life sentence. In the meantime, the Kansas Innocence Project keeps working on the case. Some DNA testing has been done, but the results have so far not yielded useful information. In 2012, a request to order additional forensic testing on things like Camille's clothing is filed. There is a new prosecutor and a new sheriff in Jefferson County. They report that there is still evidence available in the Arfman case, and they have no objection to further testing. 
Still, several years go by before the results of the new tests are known. In 2015, the bombshell results are announced. A vaginal swab taken from Camille's body reveals sperm that matches Thomas Bledsoe. Why on earth was this vaginal swab not brought up at the original trial? I don't know. In 2000, the presence of semen would have been detective, and some kind of data could have been gotten from it just by looking through a microscope. Not at trial or in the appeals, does anyone ever mention a vaginal swab with semen on it? But they spend all kinds of time debating whether Camille's exposed breasts indicate a sexual motive in the crime. Well, semen inside a 14-year-old definitely constitutes a sexual motive. The only conclusion I can reach is that a rape kit was done, but for some reason nobody ever bothered to process it or put it in any lab reports. In addition, there is touch DNA on Camille's socks. That belongs to Thomas and Floyd Sr. The newspaper implied that this means Thomas and Floyd Sr. dragged Camille by her ankles to the dump site. Maybe. A few weeks later, on November 9th, 2015, 16 years to the day since Thomas was first charged with Camille's murder, Thomas Bledsoe is found dead in his car at the Bonner Springs, Kansas, Walmart parking lot. His death is ruled a suicide. I couldn't find exactly how he killed himself. He was found with a bandaged arm and a bag over his head. Three suicide notes are found in the car. Thomas's last story is this. He picked up Camille from the trailer at 4.30 p.m. that Friday and took her to his parents' house. He writes, we had sex on my parents' bed. That's how his DNA got on her clothes. Afterwards, we were leaving, and I asked her not to tell. That's when I found out she was 14, and I freaked out. Then he says he drove her to the family dump and tried to convince her not to tell anyone. He went to his truck, got his gun from behind the seat, and, quote, pushed her to the ground to try to scare her. When the gun went off behind her head, it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill her. I might as well go ahead and say it. I raped and murdered a 14-year-old girl, unquote. He said he tried to tell the truth, but nobody would listen. Quote, Floyd S. Bledsoe is an innocent man. 
Thomas E. Bledsoe is the guilty one, unquote. He also drew a diagram of the murder scene and wrote, quote, you will find an empty shell no more than 20 yards off the ditch, unquote. Detectives did go to the scene and they found a nine millimeter shell, possibly the elusive fourth shell. He apologized to his wife and his parents, quote, I really loved you, but I cannot go on. It's tearing me up inside, unquote. A month later, Floyd Bledsoe walks out of court a free man. Listeners, I don't know about you, but I found this case just maddening. There are things about our justice system that drive me crazy. With murder cases, I just want to know what really happened. I want the truth to be the only focus of law enforcement and the legal system. In reality, we have an adversarial system where one side wins and the other side loses, and the truth is sometimes a casualty. I think I get it. We want a system that errs on the side of protecting innocent people, even if sometimes guilty people go free. But I do wish we could at least move in a direction that would allow for a more cooperative approach. You have a prosecution on one side and the defense on the other side. Then there's the jury, which is supposed to decide what are sometimes life and death situations, and they are basically potted plants. They can't ask questions. They can't investigate even to the extent of trying to apply some common sense to a situation. They can only make the decisions based on what they are presented with in court, even if what they are presented with is incomplete or conflicting, or in this case, sometimes just pure crap. Why can't juries ask questions? I would have had a lot of them at this trial. Why can't somebody look over the cases for both sides and make a judgment like, guys, this case just isn't ready for prime time. You need to look at this and this and this and maybe find out about that and check on that. Sorry for the rant, listeners. I'm almost through. I know I'm being simplistic, but I wish we could do better. In this case, I'm kind of mad at both sides, but mainly at Jim Vanderbilt, the prosecutor, for flip-flopping so fast and believing Thomas with almost nothing to back up what he's saying. It's just mind-boggling. Someone should have stepped back, taken a deep breath, and said, we will not rush to judgment. All possibilities must be explored thoroughly. All the evidence must be looked at. That is not what happened at all. Things were moving so fast 
that Floyd's scheduled trial had to be delayed for weeks because the lab reports weren't in. I can't imagine what they were thinking racing off to try somebody without even waiting for the evidence reports, much less trying someone for murder without a believable theory of the crime. My only explanation is that the prosecutor felt pressured to charge somebody, anybody. They thought it was either Thomas or Floyd or maybe both. Floyd wasn't talking and Thomas was. So roll the dice. What a system. Well, listeners, I still have questions about what really happened. Knowing what we know now, there are two possibilities. Thomas did everything, and Floyd is completely innocent. Or, somehow, both brothers are involved. Looking at what came out of the trial, this is the timeline the weekend Camille disappears. Keep in mind, these are based on people's recollections, so we should allow for some flexibility. Camille gets off the bus at the trailer at 4.20 p.m. Her best friend, Rose Meyer, drives up at about 5 p.m., goes in the trailer, and doesn't find Camille anywhere. At 6.30, James Bollinger stops the church van at the trailer to pick up Camille, but she isn't there. At about 5.30 p.m., Colonel Knoebel hears the screams. He reports what he heard to the sheriff at 7 p.m. that night. Both sides at the trial accept that Camille was abducted and probably killed within this time frame. Floyd is at work at Zool Dairy Farm that afternoon. He arrives at work in his own car. At about 4 p.m., his boss sends him on an errand in the dairy's truck. He returns alone about 5 p.m. and gives Richard Zool the receipt time stamped 4.20 p.m. The store owner testifies that he was there 15 to 20 minutes. Floyd is seen by Mrs. Zool beginning the evening milking between 6.15 and 6.30 p.m. At 11.30 p.m., Floyd calls Richard to report that he is about to finish up for the night. At midnight, he arrives at the trailer. He picks up Cody and Christian from the babysitter at 12.45 a.m. and takes them back at 2.45 a.m. He picks them up again at about 8 a.m. Saturday morning. Even though Thomas knew the location of the body and his gun is the murder weapon, doesn't that sound like a slam dunk case? The prosecutor is dead set on showing that Floyd did it. So, they need to figure out how. Their presentation isn't very coherent, but I think this is what they were trying to show. The drive from the dairy to the store is 10 or 15 minutes. Floyd's there for a while, 
So he probably left about 4.30 p.m. Floyd tells Detective Frost that he went by the trailer on his way back to the dairy, but no one was there. That puts him at the trailer about 4.45 p.m. If Camille was there, it's barely possible for Floyd to get Camille out of the trailer and be back at the dairy by 5. Zul doesn't see any sign of Camille, but she could be out looking at cows or unconscious, whatever, and he just doesn't see her. Then at 5.30, Floyd does something that makes Camille start screaming. Floyd isn't seen by anyone during that time between 5 and 6.15 p.m. He can't be disposing of the body at his parents' property then. There isn't enough time. But he could put the body in the trunk of his car or somewhere and dump it later. He's not really accounted for from 6.30 until 11.30 p.m. And after that, he's supposedly out searching, so he could dump the body during that time. Okay, I know it's really stretching to get that theory to fit the timeline. I haven't even mentioned that somehow Floyd has to get Thomas's gun and somehow get it back in Thomas's truck before the next day. So the prosecutor really needs some actual evidence. The prosecution, you would think, would want forensics all over the trailer and all over the dairy truck and all over Floyd's car. And then at least look at some preliminary results. But inexplicably, that's not what they do. They immediately go all out against Floyd and let Thomas completely off the hook. Listeners, I think it's just an emotional decision on Vanderbilt's part. A gut feeling, if you will, which is no way to run a murder investigation. There's a place for intuition, but not at the expense of logic. The initial case against Thomas, even without the sperm and the suicide notes, is much stronger than the case against Floyd. It's so hard to defend the way this case went. For what it's worth, this is my best shot. Thomas picks up his paycheck in Lawrence between 2 p.m. and 3 p.m. He then buys ammunition at nearby Rusty's Outdoor Sports. There is a receipt for the ammo time-stamped 4.30 p.m. The Rusty's in Lawrence is closed now, but it was at 1920 West 23rd Street. If you're familiar with Lawrence, that's kind of down south. On my Maps app, I get 35 to 40 minutes drive from there to the trailer. Now, listeners, traffic 
is terrible in Lawrence, especially at 4.30 p.m., especially on Fridays, and even worse if there's a football or basketball game that weekend. And I would guess both were going on that weekend. If Thomas was at Rusty's at 4.30 p.m., he cannot abduct Camille from the trailer before Rose gets there at 5 p.m. But what if Rose's time or the timestamp are a little off, or maybe even both are a little off. Then Thomas would have time. Let's suppose Camille is in his truck by, say, 5.15 p.m. Thomas attends the same activity at Countryside Baptist Church near McLeod that Camille was supposed to go to. He is there reportedly as early as 6 p.m. and returns home about 9.30 p.m. His parents return to the house about 10 p.m. and find him there. So after 5.15, Thomas has to drive the victim to Wild Horse Road, maybe 10 minutes, where the hunter hears the screams, do something with Camille, kill her, or restrain her isn't time to take the body all the way to the dump site and get to the church by six or really even seven. It's just too far. But he could easily have the body in his truck or concealed somewhere else and put her in the ditch later that night. This is not quantum physics. Both sides should have been able to work out that Thomas absolutely does not have an ironclad alibi for the murder. I couldn't find anyone calling Rose's time of 5 p.m. into question. I think she could have been off a few minutes, but not much more than that, because going by the trailer after she gets off work in Winchester is something she does regularly. At trial, defense attorney Kurth does attack the timestamp on the Rusty's receipt. He claims that the time setting on the register at Rusty's was fast, possibly by as much as 45 minutes. But it really doesn't have to be off by nearly that much. And if Thomas uses a gun to coerce Camille, things can happen really fast and there wouldn't be much evidence of a struggle. Listeners, this scenario is pretty much what I think happened. I know it doesn't match Thomas's story in the suicide notes, but he's a liar. I don't expect him to tell the truth just because he's about to kill himself. There's no way the semen in Camille is the result of anything consensual on his parents' bed. I believe Thomas took Camille to a remote spot out where Colonel Knoble was hunting. And I'm inclined to believe that the colonel heard Camille screaming. His testimony is very convincing, and he has no reason to lie. 
Plus, it would be quite a coincidence that he heard someone else screaming the very same night Camila's murdered at the very same time she goes missing. And that person never comes forward to say, no, that was me screaming that night. I think while Thomas was forcing himself on horrified little Camille, he prematurely ejaculated. That explains why there were no obvious signs of sexual assault. It could also maybe help explain why the sperm evidence never came up until some law students asked for new DNA testing. Then Thomas panicked. Maybe he heard the dogs and Colonel Knoble yelling. He forced Camille back in the truck and raced off to his parents' place and shot her there. The timeline is already tight for him to do all this and get to the church, so I think he just left her there near Wild Horse Road, went to the church, and came back later to get rid of the body. It's too bad the prosecution didn't consider this scenario. It makes a lot of sense. But on top of all the other things they do and don't do, the worst is the what Cody saw testimony. This is impossible to defend. Suppose you hear a two-year-old say, Uncle Tom shot Aunt Mimi. Well, if at the time you only know Aunt Mimi is missing, you might reasonably take it seriously and report it to somebody and try to find out more. But that's not what happened. Cody is not saying anything about this until the Monday evening after the body is found. At trial, they tried to say he couldn't have known what happened to Aunt Mimi. Well, that's just ridiculous. The people around him probably weren't talking about anything else that day. By that time, who knows what he's heard or what people have tried to get him to say. And on top of that, at first, he's saying Uncle Tom did it. It's not until later people start saying maybe he was saying Daddy did it. Never mind. We're talking about a two-year-old. It just infuriates me that this was ever allowed into the trial at all, much less that the defense even tried to use it in their case. This was just the ultimate in craziness. But at the end of the day, law enforcement and the prosecution and the defense and the jury and the courts did what they did, and the result was a mess. Okay, I guess that's enough about how bad this case makes the justice system look. I will admit I'm not the biggest fan 
of getting convicted murderers out of jail, especially on technicalities. If you push me, I'll tell you I think Adnan Syed and Stephen Avery and the Memphis Three are guilty. Listeners, please don't send hate mail on this. I'm just naturally skeptical of documentaries that are clearly pushing one side of a case. But even if you try to stay open to other opinions and new information, sometimes, just for your own sanity, you have to make up your mind on things. That's where I am on those cases. I do question some of the things Floyd said in police interviews, and it really creeps me out that he was hitting on his 14-year-old sister-in-law. However, being a jerk doesn't make you a murderer. I can come up with scenarios that put Floyd on the scene somehow. But any scenarios with Floyd must include Thomas getting semen on Camille. I can't imagine how you'd even begin to question that evidence. Although Floyd denied it, I believe Detective Frost when he says Floyd told him he went to the trailer that Friday. If Floyd is at the trailer, Camille probably is too, and maybe even Thomas at the same time. All kinds of things could have happened then. But I think it all comes down to this. Once Floyd is charged with first-degree murder by his brother and his parents seem to be on Thomas's side, all bets have got to be off. I am convinced that if Floyd knew anything about what happened, he would start talking. I honestly think he was completely blindsided when Thomas blamed him and just couldn't comprehend what was happening before it was too late. I honestly believe a completely innocent man was wrongfully convicted in this case. Since 2015, the Bledsoe case has been a catalyst for reform in Kansas. In 2016, a bill was signed requiring that interrogations and confessions for homicide and felony sexual offenses must be digitally recorded. In 2018, a bill was signed awarding those wrongfully convicted $65,000 for each year of wrongful imprisonment. Recently, Floyd Bledsoe Jr. was awarded a million dollars as compensation for his ordeal. We should never forget that the real victim in this case was Camille. She was laid to rest at the Presbyterian Cemetery in Winchester so her mother can visit her every day. She was only 14 years old. You can send her a virtual flower at her virtual grave at www.findagrave.com 
where the memorial posted reads, Camille or Camilla or Aunt Millie was a lovely, beautiful girl, milky white skin and lovely, thick, long hair. She was a good girl. She went to church and she obeyed her parents. She was having some trouble in school at Jeff West, so she transferred to Oskaloosa High School where she was doing very well in school. She loved animals. She was very gentle, a real sweetheart. You are missed, Camilla. If you go to the show notes, I've posted the links to the sources used for this episode. Reporter Joe Miller has a great article about the case from August 3rd, 2000 in the Kansas City Pitch. The main newspapers I used were the Lawrence Journal World and the Oskaloosa Independent and the Atchison Globe. For court records, La Justia case law, and kscourts.org provided some good information about the legalities. Finally, the Innocence Project website is another indispensable source of information for people interested in true crime. I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to Prison City Murders and write a review. Even critical feedback is appreciated. By the way, when I started PCM, my plan was for it to be a weekly podcast, like most of my favorites. But this case just took me too long. Sorry, my sister's visiting, the grandkids are out of school, and life just got in the way. I promise I'll keep working on the time management part of podcasting and living. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts behind bars.